The old pilot's playing tales. The 12 crashes of Christmas. The 12 days of Christmas are generally thought to run from the 26th of December to the 6th of January and is an important period of religious celebration. Or for those of us who observe Christmas in a more secular manner, it's more likely to be a traditional time of recovery following our holiday excesses and to welcome in the new year. The most common reference to the period is probably found in the English carol, The Twelve Days of Christmas, the words of which were first published in the late 18th century and tell of the twelve gifts given to a true love during the period. Of course, those of us in the aviation industry often remember dates by events that occurred on a particular day and the most memorable are often the most tragic. With that in mind, I present to you the 12 crashes of Christmas. On the first day of Christmas, the Tupolev Tu-144 Soviet supersonic airliner went into service flying mail and freight between Moscow and Almaty. It had a troubled life, which many put down to errors made during the rush to bring it into service before the Anglo-French Concorde. Later that year, it was to be involved in an appalling crash during the Paris air show, which shocked the world and is still the subject of conspiracy theories. A little-known fact is that the prototypes were the only passenger jets ever fitted with ejector seats, albeit for the crew and not the passengers. It would only ever fly 55 flights with passengers on board, but was certainly the fastest freighter in the world in a time when same-day delivery was still a pipe dream. On the second day of Christmas, Apollo 8 splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, ending the first flight to take man beyond Earth orbit to circle the moon ten times and then return safely. Frank Norman, James Lovell and William Anders were the first humans to gaze upon the far side of the moon and witness an Earth ride. Sadly, it also saw the demise of United Airlines Flight 34 in 1936. The Boeing Model 247D, which was out of San Francisco, bound for Los Angeles. On trying to let down through cloud, the crew flew the aircraft into the Newell Pass, descending below the level of the surrounding mountains. Certainly ahead, the weather was allowing aircraft to arrive and depart Burbank Airport with no appreciable delays, which may have influenced the behaviour of the pilots, but in their current position, they were unable to find a clear path through the cloud. The Boeing struck a ridge at the head of Rice Canyon, which resulted in the death of all on board and the complete destruction of the aircraft.
On the third day of Christmas, CIA pilot Mili Vojvodic Jr. took a Lockheed A-12 ox cart for a functional check flight after a period of deep maintenance. Seconds after takeoff from Groom Dry Lake, Nevada, the aircraft yawed uncontrollably, merely ejecting at 100 feet, only 30 metres, after only six seconds of flight escaping serious injury. An investigation discovered that the pitch stability augmentation system had been connected to the yaw actuators and vice versa. The connectors were changed to make such wiring mistakes impossible, said Kelly Johnson in a history of the Oxcart program. It was perfectly evident from the movies taken of the takeoff and from the pilot's description that there were some miswired gyros in the aircraft. This turned out to be exactly what happened. In spite of colour coding and every other normal precaution, the pitch and your gyro connections were interchanged in rigging. On the fourth day of Christmas, a mighty C-130 Hercules landed at an airbase in northern Iraq late in the night of December the 29th, 2004. It appears that the MC-130 Talon II Special Operations aircraft was destroyed when it landed on a runway that was described as being one brick short. Previously, a C-23 Sherpa had operated into the airfield and saw construction equipment on the runway, yet there wasn't a NOTAM warning of the work in progress. A huge unmarked trench was being dug there, so the Sherpa landed long beyond the problem area. Despite passing this safety information up the chain of command, several days later the Hercules made a night landing there and ended up falling into a large pit in the runway. Fortunately, although there were several injuries amongst the 11 passengers and crew, nobody died. On the fifth day of Christmas, 1933, Imperial Airways were flying an Avro 10, named Apollo, to Croydon Airport in London from Cologne in Germany. They were planning to land en route at Harren Airport in Brussels. During the flight, they encountered fog, so deviated north of the expected route and descended to only 250 feet in order to stay visual with the ground. Their new routing took them into an unexpected area, within which were a group of eight very low-frequency radio masts, the Zend Masts of Rauschleder. One of those masts rose to a height of 942 feet, 287 metres, and was built to transmit on a frequency of 16.2 kilohertz. Despite being illuminated, the visibility prevented the crew from sighting the guy wires, and the Avro 10 hit one, ripping the wing from the stricken craft. It crashed in flames, and workers from the radio station as well as local villagers ran to help the two crew and eight passengers. 
One passenger survived the crash but sadly died later, and several of the rescuers suffered burns. King Albert of Belgium awarded Camille van Hove the Civic Cross First Class for his efforts in attempting to rescue the victims of the crash. On the sixth day of Christmas, 1940, a Vickers Wellington bomber of number 20 operational training unit from RAF Lossiemouth suffered a starboard engine failure at 8,000 feet in a snowstorm during a training flight over the Great Glen in Scotland, home of Loch Ness and its fabled monster. The pilot ordered his crew of six trainee navigators and the tail gunner to bail out all escaping safely, save the gunner. Sadly, his parachute failed to open. The pilot then spotted Loch Ness through the clouds and successfully managed to ditch the aircraft near the A-82 before escaping the sinking machine along with his remaining crew member. Forty-five years later, the wreck was discovered by side-scan sonar and the rare Wellington was carefully raised from the cold depths of the loch. It was painstakingly restored at Weybridge, where she was built, and is now on display at the Brooklands Museum, one of only two known intact Wellingtons. On the seventh day of Christmas, 1917, a motley crew of Royal Navy aviators were given the task of flying from Manston in England to Villa Clouplet in France in a brand new Handy Page Type 0100 bomber. Then the largest aircraft in the world and powered by the new 320 horsepower Rolls-Royce Eagle V12 water-cooled engines, the bomber could carry up to 2,000 pounds of bombs and was highly secret. Having become lost over the continent, they decide to land to ask for directions. Unfortunately, they put this highly valuable aircraft down near Chalandre, close to Loan, which was behind German lines. Before they could either burn the machine or take off again, a German infantry patrol captured them and their intact bomber. Having gifted the enemy this remarkable heavy machine, they were destined to spend the rest of the war behind barbed wire. The aircraft, however, was a treasure trove of information for the Imperial German Army, who painted it in German markings and flew it themselves. Even the Baron von Richthofen was reputed to have flown the machine at a display in front of the Kaiser. On the eighth day of Christmas 1914, the early aviator Gustav Hamel, who had performed the loop-de-loop manoeuvre in late 1913, took Eleanor Treehawk Davies aloft to experience the daring aerobatic feat, and thus she became the first woman in the world to do so. 
Born in Hamburg, Gustav learned to fly at the Blériot School in France, being awarded the 64th Royal Aero Club's Aviator Certificate in 1911. A keen aircraft racer, he flew from Brooklands to Hendon in a record 17 minutes and participated in the Gordon Bennett race. He delivered the first official airmail in Britain in his Blerio 11 to Windsor and carried the first lady passenger across the English Channel, the first of 21 crossings he would make. He died before reaching the age of 25 when he disappeared over the channel he had crossed so many times in a brand new Moraine Sulnia he had just collected. No trace of the aircraft was ever found. On the ninth day of Christmas, 1496, in a field outside of Florence, Italy's Leonardo da Vinci decided to test out his now famous flying machine. This genius of a man was a painter, inventor and visionary, and he gave us such renowned works as the Mona Lisa, the Last Supper and the Vitruvian Man. Even though Leonardo invented many things, perhaps his most daring was his flying machine. The design for this invention was clearly inspired by the flight of winged animals, which da Vinci hoped to replicate. In fact, his notes mention bats, kites and birds as sources of inspiration. The flying machine had a wingspan that exceeded 33 feet, and the frame was made of pine and covered in raw silk to create a light but sturdy membrane. Sadly, his ornithopter, with its spinning pedals, hand cranks and flapping wings, was never going to fly successfully. On the 10th day of Christmas, the Brooklyn Dodgers became the first professional sports team to own its own aircraft when it placed an order for a Convair 440 Metropolitan Airliner. The team paid a little over three quarters of a million dollars, which in 1957 values puts the airliner at over eight million dollars in today's money. It was, if you'll excuse the pun, a steal, since they piggybacked the purchase onto an existing order for 20 of the Convairs by Eastern Airlines. Apart from adding an autopilot to the aircraft, they were identical to the Eastern ones, including having their Eagle logo on the tail. Their pilot was Harry R. Bump Holman, who became the chief pilot for the Dodgers until he retired from flying to run the family businesses. After the team moved to California, they sold their Convair, which went to Spain and bought a Lockheed Electra. By 1978, the Convair was being operated by the Transport Aereo Militare Boliviano a civil transport airline of the Bolivian Air Force, under the registration TAM-45. An engine problem forced the crew to return to San Ramon Airport, and on landing, the aircraft ran off the runway into a ditch and was damaged beyond repair. 
Happily, no one on board was hurt. On the 11th day of Christmas, 1939, Amelia Mary Earhart was formally declared dead, 18 months after her disappearance during her second attempt to circumnavigate the globe. The first had ended in disaster when her Electra entered an uncontrollable ground loop during takeoff from Honolulu in Hawaii. Earhart thought she had lost a tyre or that the undercarriage had collapsed, but Mance, her chief technical advisor, thought it was Amelia's error. Whilst the Electra was being repaired, Earhart and her husband, George Putnam, secured funding for another attempt this time with Fred Noonan as her sole companion. They reached Papua New Guinea successfully and then took off again, heading for the tiny Howland Island, two kilometres by half a kilometre in size and only three metres above sea level, which lay over 2,000 miles and 20 hours of flying away. To aid her, the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Itasca was positioned at the island and would broadcast radio transmissions which Earhart and Noonan could home in on. The radio direction finding equipment on Amelia's aircraft, however, had been fitted only just prior to the flight and she would not have been familiar with it. In addition, it's possible that the belly-mounted DF antenna was damaged when the Electra, heavy with fuel, taxied and took off. As Earhart approached the island, the cutter could hear her clearly, but she was apparently unable to hear voice transmissions from the ship. Calls were received, as well as a request to give a bearing to fly, but the ship's direction-finding equipment wasn't able to home in on the frequencies being used. The Electra should have been close, but they were unable to assist them. The last clear message was in Morse and stated, Itasca, we must be on you, but cannot see you, but gas is running low, been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. The ship made smoke, and they listened as, broken by static, a few more words were passed, indicating that they were flying in a line north and south. As the endurance time of the Electra came and passed, nothing more could be confirmed as coming from the lost aircraft. On the very same day, two years later, the renowned British aviatrix Amy Johnson was doing war work as an air transport auxiliary pilot delivering aircraft of all types around the United Kingdom. During a filthy night flying an airspeed Oxford from RAF Presswick in Scotland to RAF Kidlington near the city of Oxford in England, she became lost. The next time she was seen was over the Thames River in London, where she abandoned her aircraft and parachuted into the water. Despite the heroic actions of a barrage balloon tender commander who dived in to help, Amy sank into the dark waters, never to be seen again. Lieutenant Commander Fletcher succumbed to the cold and also died. 
On the 12th day of Christmas 1940, Jorma Savanto of the Finnish Air Force finished off six Soviet Aleutian DB-3 bombers in as many minutes. A single member of the Formation of Seven escaped his rampage, but was later brought down over the Gulf of Finland by Lieutenant Per Erik Solvilius. The Winter War began within weeks of the start of World War II when Soviet forces invaded the country, and after 105 days, Finland was forced to give up border areas of its own land, amounting to some 9% of its territory. The Finnish Air Force had quitted itself well, claiming 200 enemy aircraft for the loss of 62, often operating from forward air bases, little more than a windsock, a telephone and a few tents, all on a frozen lake. Jorma would go on to become Finland's leading ace with a total of 17 kills by the end of World War II. His actions in the war would go a long way to ensure that the homeland of Father Christmas, or should I say, the Yule Goat, Julepuki, an ugly half-man, half-goat that frightened children and could become invisible, would remain in Finnish hands. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and you can find out all about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com. And if you're enjoying Plane Tales and want to leave us a lovely Christmas present, then how about popping a nice review into Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? We'd really appreciate it. Many thanks for listening, and a very Merry Christmas. <laughs>